0: We are going to look at the last part of chapter 21 of the book of Revelation today as we continue our Advent series, uh, nurturing our hearts in the joy uh, that is awaiting us, uh, the the joy that our hearts in stillness wait for that we just sang about. Uh, That is Revelation chapter 21, and uh, I don't have the page number, but uh, I'll have it in a second. Revelation chapter 21, starting in uh, page number 1937, and we're going to read verse 9 through verse 27. Hear the word of the Lord. One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Father, we come before you, and admittedly, this passage is strange and difficult, and so we ask that you would speak to us what it is we need to know about heaven today, God, that we might be moved to hope, that we might be moved to be grateful for the peace that we have and the peace that awaits us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We'll take a moment. And try to imagine what it would be like for someone who is blind. Imagine what it would be like for them if you were trying to explain what color is. Would you have any reference points that you could give them that they could grab onto to have even the slightest understanding what it is to see blue and red Or or somebody who's deaf. Many of us will be gathered here this afternoon to hear the Messiah in this building that has amazing acoustics. And we're going to be moved to worship. Imagine trying to explain to somebody who's deaf what, what that experience is like. Or somebody who can't taste. I love cheesecake. I love steak. I I can't imagine trying to explain to somebody who can't taste what it's like to just let your mouth soak in the goodness of food. That's what we see in our passage here. You and I don't have the senses to comprehend heaven. As Paul tells us, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human mind can conceive the things God has prepared for those who love him. So if the human mind can't even conceive what heaven is going to be like, how can anybody even explain it to us? So what God does in his grace and his mercy is he spends redemptive history giving us symbols and images combined with the symbols and images we know from just life in general that he's given us. And John uses those symbols and images to give us an idea about what heaven is like. We do this all the time. Imagine a A man who's in love with a woman, and he tells her, looking into your eyes are like looking into a deep well. It's like looking into bright, glimmering, dancing ballerinas. Well, are her eyes anything like a deep well? Are her eyes anything like glimmering, dancing ballerinas? Well, yes and no, right? Because there's something true that's being communicated by that. He's saying that when he looks into her eyes, he can stare into her eyes forever. Because there's so much substance and depth there, like a well. But also her eyes are not sad. They're bright and happy eyes. They're they're dancing like a ballerina, right? There's, There's true things that we know that are being communicated by these images, even if, even if there's no way that a well and a ballerina have anything in common. Just like a bride and a city really have nothing in common. John tells us, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride. The wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so when the angel takes John to this high mountain and he shows him the bride and he sees a city, we're not supposed to think, well, how can a bride and a city be like each other? Just like we're not supposed to think, how can someone's eyes be both a well, and a ballerina. What we're supposed to think is what do we know about brides and what do we know about cities and what is God trying to tell us about a place that our minds can't even conceive by telling us that this place is like a bride and like a city. What happens to a bride on her wedding day? She wakes up with bedhead and bad breath. And then she goes through a a metamorphosis. It begins with a washing, and then it goes on to this moment where somebody comes over and puts makeup on her face to draw out the beauty of her face. And then somebody else comes over and takes her hair and shapes it to frame the beauty of her face. And then she puts on a wedding dress. Meant to display her form and her purity and her glory. And it's white and it shines and it's full of lace and diamonds and pearls. And all of these things are meant to capture the light and to reflect the light back into all of our eyes. So we are mesmerized by her beauty. And then the church doors open. And she comes down the center aisle and everybody looks at her and everybody is captivated by her, right? Her, her beauty is so obvious that all the world can see, but her beauty is not for the world. Her beauty is for one man and he's standing at the front and she's walking towards him and their eyes are locked. Right? This, this picture is what, is what John and God wants us to have here, Right? We are the bride, but Christ is our husband. He is the one who died for us. He is the one who cleanses us. He is the one who draws out what is good in us. He is the one who forms us and shapes us and purifies us and covers us with his robes of righteousness. He is the one, as Paul says, who gave himself up for the church to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And in Revelation 21, we are peering into the moment where you and I are finally holy and blameless. This is the moment when the church is finally a pure and spotless bride made ready for her husband. And that's what God wants us to know. And we're also a city. Well, what do we know about cities? We know that cities are full of people. We know that cities are places that provide safety and security, especially in the ancient world. Cities are places where commerce happens. People come and go, they buy and sell, and cities end up accumulating wealth. Cities are also places where temples are built and where worship happens. And these are all things everyone would have immediately understood about a city. And John wants us to know that heaven is like that. It's like a city, except this city is a little different than we ordinarily think about a city. And so John's going to go on then and describe in detail all the differences between this city and what we would ordinarily associate with cities. The city is called Jerusalem. And everyone here in John's original audience and sense would have known that Jerusalem was destroyed. When John wrote these words, Jerusalem was in rubble. But it's called Jerusalem because this city is everything the first Jerusalem was supposed to be. Which includes all the ways this city is different than a normal city. First of all, cities are full of people, but this city is the people. Don't ask me how that works. But that's what we're supposed to understand, right? Just like an eye can be a well. Well, how is that? Well, I don't know, but it's communicating something true. So let's look. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so 12 is an important number. 12 is a number that's meant to represent the people of Israel of God and the Old Testament the people of God were the nation of Israel comprised of 12 tribes. And the New T- Testament when Jesus arrives on the scene and he begins to constitute the new people of God, the new Israel because he is the new Israel. He gets 12 apostles. Which is why in Revelation chapter twenty or sorry, Revelation chapter four, there's twenty-four elders gathered around the throne, meant to represent the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles and the complete number of the people of God. And the gates of this city have the names of the twelve tribes of Israel on them, because, as Jesus tells the woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. You see, we enter the city. By the gates. And the New Testament is incomprehensible without the Old Testament. And there are three gates on every side of the city, because even though salvation is from the Jews, it is not just for the Jews. As Jesus tells a Jewish audience in Luke 13, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. So this salvation is from the Jews. It's for every faithful Jew who is part of the 12 tribes of Israel, but it's also for people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue who will come from north and south and east and west to this city. This salvation is for every kind of people. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for all are one in Christ. And as Paul also tells us, the salvation is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Do you see what John's doing here? He's gathering up all of these ideas and pictures previously given to us in scripture and he's sweeping them together in this moment to help us understand that we are the city. He goes on, the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide, he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was four hundred and forty-four cubits thick. So this, this wall, right, the size of the city and the thickness of the walls are represented again by the number 12. The size is 12,000 stadia, so 12, again, to represent the people of God within a 1,000, and the number 1,000 in this book is, is to represent a great, huge number of people. And then the thickness of the walls is 144 cubits thick, which is 12 times 12, which also represents the perfect, complete number of the people of God. Because not one single person that belongs to Jesus will be left out of this city. As he tells the crowds in John 6, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So we're all here. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes is here. But it doesn't stop there. John goes on. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. So there's twelve different stones decorating the foundations, and the foundations have the twelve names of the apostles of Jesus, so what's with these 12 stones? All the way back in Exodus, when God was first introducing the idea of a place for the people of God to come and have their sins taken away where, he, where they could worship him, and that was the tabernacle, he began even then laying out the details that John is using in this passage. And one of those details was the clothing of the high priest. Now the high priest is a very significant figure in Old Testament religion, because he is the one who would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would go in once a year, and the Holy of Holies was at the center of the temple. You had the outer courts, the inner courts, and then the Holy of Holies, and he would only go in there once a year to, on the Day of Atonement, to make sacrifices for all the people, and he would wear a breastplate, and here we're described that breastplate in Exodus chapter 28. God says to Moses, It is to be square, a span long and a span wide, and folded double. Then mount four rows of precious stones on it. The first row shall be carnelian, chrysolite, and beryl. The second row shall be turquoise, lapis lazuli, and emerald. The third row shall be jacinth, agate, and amethyst. The fourth row shall be topaz, onyx, and jasper. Mount them in gold filigree settings. And this isn't perfect correspondence between the stones listed in... uh, Uh, Revelation 21 and the stones listed here, but it's probably what's lost in translation. Because if you even go back and look at the old NIV that we read, the stones listed there, the names are different than the ones in the new NIV. And so there's there's different names for these stones, okay? And these stones that the high priest wore on himself when he would go into the holies of holies once a year, they're the stones that decorate the foundations of the city. And what were those stones for? God tells Moses, there are to be 12 stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the 12 tribes. So where once the people of God could only enter the Holy of Holies, once a year represented as stones on the breastplate of the high priest, now the people of God are stones in the city forever in the presence of God. And this idea that the people of God are stones of the city and the temple is not new to the biblical narrative. Peter writes, and he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So a city is a place for people, but this city is the people. Okay? A city is also a place that provides safety and security. And we know that there is nothing more safe, nothing more secure than the salvation that we're offered in Christ. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. But that security is no longer something we trust in by faith when we're in this city, right? We, we live in this city. There's no threats From the world, we experience the safety and security in every aspect of the city. This city, we're told, had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. So the city has a great high wall. That word great is the Greek word megas, where we get the word mega. So literally, this is a mega high wall. And we're told that it's 12,000 stadia, which is 1,400 miles. It's 1,400 miles high, this, this wall. There's an angel on the top of every gate, a guardian angel, if you will, protecting it, keeping it safe. And then we're told in verse 17 that the angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. So he's measuring it, and measuring it tells us that it's permanent, right? When you you measure something, that tells you, if we come back later and measure this, it should be exactly the same size. Because nothing can penetrate it, nothing can conquer it, nothing can destroy it. It will always be this size. And it's the perfect size, 144 cubits, which is the people of God. And 144 cubits is like two-thirds of a football field. That's That's how thick this wall is. Like nothing can penetrate it. But it actually doesn't matter how high and thick the walls are or whether angels are there to keep watch because, verse 25... On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. So these gates are just standing wide open. The other day I came home, I haven't told my wife this yet, but I came home for lunch and she was gone that morning running errands and our front door was like wide open. And like I'm preaching this passage and I thought, well, this is like, you know, this is like Revelation 21. The, the door is wide open. So I went inside, and everything was exactly as it was supposed to be. Nothing was touched. Nothing was stolen. Sometimes you hear people talk about the past, and they say, Oh, I remember the days when we we used to be able to leave and never lock our doors. And the picture of gates and doors standing wide open is a picture of perfect security, perfect peace. It's the complete absence of any threat. It's perfect trust. And living in a town where you can accidentally leave your front door open for a few hours and nothing gets stolen is just a hint of what it's like to live someplace where there's perfect peace. And one day there will be perfect peace. We will have peace inside our souls because all sin and sadness and sorrow are gone. We will have peace with each other because all evil is gone. There will be no more envy and pride and competition which is also why there's no night in this city. Not because there's literally no night, just like last week, you know, when it said there was no sea. But but but, but night is darkness and in scriptures darkness is evil. And that's why there's no night here because there's no evil. We will have perfect peace with God and his presence for eternity. We will be eternally safe and secure. And in the city, there's also commerce, right? There's buying and there's selling. But in this city, we're told, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. See, they're going to come and they're just going to give and offer. They're not, they're not here to trade. They're not here to barter and buy and sell. They're just, they're just here to give God what they have. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. And most commentators say that what's being talked about here is just worship, right? The nations are going to come. They're going to offer and give their worship to God. Even the kings of the nations, we're told, are going to repent of their sins, believe the gospel, and then come and give their, their worship and their splendor to God. That's what takes place here. Not buying and selling, but offering and giving and worship. And the last thing about this city is that it has temples. Or actually, cities have temples. They have places of worship. But here, we're specifically told that this city has none. John writes, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple." So there's a couple reasons why there's no temple. First of all, because the Lord God and the Lamb, well, they are the temple. And temples and cities are places where you go to worship, but when you go to this city, God is just there. He's filling all of it. A temple would be redundant. But also the city itself is the temple. If we go back to verse 16, it says, The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide, He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. So the city is a perfect cube. It's 12,000 stadia or 1,400 miles, which was about the size of the known world at the time. So here's this perfect cube that takes up the entirety of the known world at the time. Well, in the Old Testament, does anybody remember anything that is shaped like a perfect cube? And it's that Holy of Holies that we talked about earlier. Right? There's the outer court, the inner court, and then the Holy of Holies, which is shaped like a perfect cube. And remember, only the high priest could enter that place once a year, and even then he'd only go on the Day of Atonement. And that's how holy this whole city is. So here's how uh, the, the Holy of Holies was described in 1 Kings. Solomon prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there, The inner sanctuary was twenty cubits long, twenty cubits wide, and twenty high. And he overlaid the inside with pure gold, and he also overlaid the altar of cedar. So John here is telling us that this entire city that takes up the size of the whole world is shaped like a holy of holies. And we're meant to understand that as all of the world now finally is filled with the glory of God. And and the holy of holies that was reserved from one spot in the middle of the temple. That the high priest could only go into once a year is now filling the entire earth. And back then, that temple was just overlaid with gold, but this city is made of pure, clearest crystal gold. Now, is this literally what heaven is going to be like? I don't know. I think probably not just like someone's eyes are not really like a well or a dancing ballerina. But that doesn't mean we don't know true things. It is a place full of every one of God's people where we are safe and secure. There's perfect peace because every threat has been removed. It's a place where the nations, even the kings of the nations, will come and worship God and the entire earth will be the place where God dwells. That's what we know. And what is heaven like? Well, no mind can conceive what heaven is like. One last thing. This is also a place of infinite glory and no sin. And I just kind of want to rattle off some of the passages, or some of the verses from this passage. In verse 11, we're told, It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Later, John says, the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. And then we're told, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. And finally, nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the walls of the city are made of gold, the most desirable metal, but not just any gold, gold that is so pure that you can see through it, clear as crystal, which is how actually John describes the throne room of God back in uh, chapter 4. And the gates are made of pearls, the most precious jewel there is, pearls that are formed by pressure and affliction, And the city shines with the glory of God because it's made out of transparent gold, clear as crystal, and God is there giving light to the city as its lamp. And because it's made out of transparent gold, it's not shining with its own glory, it's displaying the glory of God because we are the light of the world. We are a city on a hill. And we've become so sinless, so pure, that all of God's glory shines through us and nothing impure will ever enter it. No one will ever do anything shameful or deceitful there. Can you imagine? So here's the thing. You and I, we struggle against sin in our own hearts, sin in other people's hearts, and sin in the world every day. It is is a battle. We, We feel sometimes defeated by it, ashamed, guilty, we feel weak. And what, what God is telling us here is there, there is a day when you will be pure. There is a day when you will be as pure and holy and spotless as, as, as a bride on her wedding day, as, as a city made of pure, transparent gold. You will be so holy that God will be able to be with you and you won't be afraid and you will just be, you will be something that that displays his glory. That is what we have to look forward to. And I know that leaves us with more unanswered questions. Well, what about well, what about people that I knew on earth? Will they, will they be in heaven with me? Well, what am I gonna do when I'm there? And the Bible doesn't answer those questions. And people have written books, they've had dreams, supposedly, or they've gone to heaven and they've told us more than what the Bible says about heaven. And my conviction is, actually, I, there's so much about this chapter that we didn't even get into. Like, I barely scratched the surface of all of the Old Testament allusions, all the New Testament allusions, all the allusions back to the book of Revelation. Like, I I barely got into it. I don't usually tell you that. I usually just preach what we preach, and I don't talk about what I left on the table. But this passage, I mean, I barely even scratched the surface. And if you spent the eight hours it would take to read a book about some kid's imagination that he had about heaven— you took that eight hours and you studied this passage instead, you would be infinitely more blessed. Infinitely. Just go read Isaiah chapter 60. Go read Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. Right? Next week, it's going to talk about the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was the original temple. The tabernacle is a picture of heaven. Right? It's meant to, it's meant to be what heaven is like. So that means the temple is supposed to be what heaven is like. And so this picture here that we get is, and again, God telling us what heaven is like. And no, it's not gonna close the loop on every one of our questions, but it's infinitely satisfying because it's what God has given us to know. And if we just peer into what God has given us to know, and we allow ourselves to be satisfied with what God wants us to know, we will be infinitely more blessed. And actually, there, there's, a, there's a guy named G.K. Beale, who wrote the commentary like this thick on the book of Revelation. He's like studied it his whole life. And I think to myself, like, yeah, you could study this book for your whole life. There, there's that much to know and to unearth here. And it's so satisfying. Let's, let's not content ourselves with fantasies about heaven Let's not, let's not try to satisfy questions that God has not answered for us. Instead, let's trust him. Let's trust him that he has given us what we need to know about heaven and it is enough to stir our hearts for the short amount of time that we're on this planet until we get to go and be there one day. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we're thankful for the truths that we know from this passage, that one day we will be pure and spotless, that one day there will be the wedding supper of the Lamb where we are united to Christ without sin forever. When we will be able to dwell in perfect peace and perfect harmony inside our own souls with each other and with you, where we will be so sinless that we can display your glory, where we won't have to suffer And we can spend the rest of eternity worshiping you, doing whatever it is you've prepared for us that our minds can't even conceive. God, may we be satisfied with what you've given us. May we delve into the depths of this picture of heaven in this life and not try to make up fantasies of what else could be there. May we be satisfied with the picture that you've given us in your word because you were good. And your mysteries are for you. And what you've revealed to us is for us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.